Hello everybody, today I'm with Jeremy from Escape to El Salvador and today we're going to talk about the Sovereign Individual Thesis, which is a book that I mentioned already in the channel if you have been following me for a while. And we're going to talk about privacy, flight theory, mobility, and how all this can end up in El Salvador and why. So welcome, Jeremy. How's it going? Uh, thank you for having me. It's going really well. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for your time. Of course. Okay, so... Today we're going to talk about, as you said, the sovereign individual thesis. Sure. And before we start, you say something very interesting, Please. which is uh, Bukele, mm-hmm. and you also think other politicians around the world, other government, are aware of this thesis. So. Sure. So, well, the book was very popular, obviously, uh, when it came out, and many people around the world, influential people, had a chance to read it. In the book, it talked about how Smaller, more agile countries would be the first to really get on board with the idea of shifting the modern nation state away from just an organization that is designed to sort of tax its citizens and protect its geography to a services oriented model. In other words, government that is designed to make the place that they control uh, more desirable for people so that you want to go there and spend your money as a tourist or develop a business or buy a house and raise a family because people now have far greater mobility than they've had in generations. And the new wealthier entrepreneurs of the world that can sort of be globe trotters, they can pick and choose where they want to go. And so why wouldn't they choose a location that is service-oriented, that is making their life more pleasant and more comfortable. So it sounds to me like governments are turning from institutions that control their citizens through means like taxation or uh, borders uh, to service providers. Absolutely. It's going to be more like picking a movie theater where to go or what brand of smartphone to buy. Sure. It's government as a service or security as a service. I believe that the government does play a valuable role in society. I'm not an anarchist. I was when I was young. (laughs) But as I've grown older, I've realized that being able to have a stable and secure area in which to live is an important service to provide. And there are a number of other things that I think the government can and should do to encourage a general welfare of its people, to borrow a phrase from the U.S. Constitution, right? So when we start talking about the changes that are being made in governance of countries, I think that there is a lifespan to really big bureaucracies, right? Once you have a large federal government that just gets out of touch with the people that that are being governed there, you're going to have tension. You're going to have friction. It's not a situation that is stable, And over time, you're going to have things like revolutions. You're going to have things like people wanting to reshape their social contract, right? So when you have a smaller country like El Salvador, they can do it more nimbly. If you've got strong leadership, if you've got intelligent leadership that understands new technology and the way that the world is going, they can position themselves as ideal location for this new crop of sometimes call them digital nomads, right? People that can pick up and go anywhere. We're preaching to the choir, right? Yeah. But those people can choose where they want to go. And so, you know, here we are already starting to see that play out. That's a very exciting time. Now, what do you think uh, is the role of privacy in such work? Because in my mind, if the government are aware of the situation, uh, what happens is that if they embrace it, they would respect people and their decisions. So privacy would not be that important. But I feel like we are still in a phase where government is definitely want to try to control and yeah. limit the mobility of their people as much as possible. Sure. And in my mind, it is because people in under the control of a state, 
they are an asset, the productive asset Absolutely. in theory. So what do you think about privacy in this contest? So I think one of the best original definitions of privacy is the ability to selectively reveal oneself to the world, right? You get to choose what you want to reveal. The major issue with privacy today, in my opinion, is finance. It's how we deal with our money. Because if our money tells a story of who we are, then that is probably the most invasive type of information that you can reveal about yourself. If you're dealing with a cash economy, it's so much easier to maintain your privacy because you can go into a shop and you pay with cash and you get instant settlement and you get instant finality. And there's no records unless the counterparties are keeping records. There's no easy way to sort of scrape that data on a meta level from society. But obviously we're entering a world where cash is absolutely under fire from, from all sides, right? Governments all around the world are wanting to reduce the role of cash in society. And that's the environment into which Bitcoin was born. It was the idea of how do we have the privacy protections of cash in the digital world, right? How do we have digital cash? And Bitcoin obviously was the solution to that problem. And when you are starting to evaluate the different governments and how they want to approach privacy, how they want to approach freedom, all you have to do is see what their stance is in regards to digital money. If they want a central bank digital currency, if they want the visas and the MasterCards and the banking cartels to be in control of everything, well, that obviously tells you how they feel about it. But if you have, on the other hand, the government that says, you know what, Bitcoin is the best money. We're going to make it legal tender. We're going to encourage its use throughout the country. Well, that's a government that's telling you loud and clear how they feel about privacy and how they feel about individual freedoms. And I feel very, very happy to say that that we're in the place where that's mm -hmm. going now. Yeah. This is very interesting because it makes me think sometimes I have conversation with locals or people abroad and they kind of uh, believed in this narrative of uh, Bukele being a dictator. Sure. And what I try to make people understand is that Let's suppose you're right or you're wrong, but let's just consider what I did. For instance, if Bukele had a plan to become a dictator, mm -hmm. would he really give his people money that he himself cannot control? Right. It would so be counterproductive. It would not be very smart, unless there is another kind of plan that I cannot even conceive at this point. Right. But to me, this is the biggest point in favor of Bukele trying to do good. Sure. At this point, I don't know yet. I don't have a very strong opinion and I'm still learning. I'm new here in El Salvador. And that's also why I'm talking to you, to learn from you. <laughs> Absolutely. Happy to share. Yeah. So if you're taking flax, you know you're over the target, right? And so in other words, you can expect all of these pieces to come out in the major media discussing the authoritarian slide in El Salvador. But when you actually come here and visit yourself and you get an experience of what it's actually like on the ground level, you don't see that. It maybe plays well in some Western countries where photojournalists will take a picture of our razor wire aesthetic or maybe some soldier holding a gun and use that to kind of paint this image of what the country is like. But that's very superficial. And at the ground level, what's happening is this country is making a transition away from the negative past that it's had and all of those stereotypes that you've been told about El Salvador and incredible progress has been made in a very short period of time. I like to make a comparison to Afghanistan because a few years back, obviously Afghanistan, and it is still pretty touch and go, it was a pretty dangerous place, right? You had a similar situation where you had a federal government that was corrupt and incapable and the folks that were 
government officials were more interested in stealing money from the government coffers than actually providing security for their citizens. And in that absence of actual power structure, you have this whole group of revolutionaries that come about and become a powerful force in society. And what we've done in El Salvador would be like if the government of Afghanistan captured all of the Taliban, like in the course of a couple of months and put them all in jail. I mean, can you imagine how many lives and how much money would have been saved if that had happened at the beginning of their conflict? It just boggles the mind to truly think about it. And so that's the reality here on the ground is that prior governments had left the responsibility for actually managing and establishing control over the territory to the gangs. And they took over. The cancer metastasized. And what you have to do at a certain point is you have to go to all of those folks and you have to round them up and you have to prosecute them under the law. And you have to do it in a way that makes sure that the gangs don't come back. That's what we've done. The progress has been amazing. And the results speak for themselves. We're the safest country now. It used to be the most dangerous. Now it's the safest. I mean, that type of change must be celebrated, you know, on the global stage. And instead, they attack them for it. Yeah, which makes you think why they are not celebrating it. And right. actually, they are condemning it like an attack to human rights. Right. And I was having a discussion with another person. And they say, yeah, they're also arresting innocent people. Right. And what I told them, why in the United States, they don't arrest innocent people? Sure. They, were they not arresting innocent people before this government? <laughs> so sometimes it seems like people cannot put things in perspective or are very selective with what they want to remember right. <laughs> right. for having a judgment on something. So, well, And nobody is going to stand up and defend arresting innocent people. Obviously, mistakes not. get made. And everyone up and down the chain of command is aware of that. That's why they want to process all of these individuals as quickly and as efficiently as possible. That's why the exception regime exists. It's a special set of uh, circumstances that allow the judges and the prosecutors to handle the massive wave of people that they've had to process over the short period of time. Obviously, you're going to have error rates, but we address that and we move on in as fair a way as possible. Of course, mistakes are always going to be made, especially when you take action on a large scale. Of course. Statistically. Uh, I mean, we're talking 50,000, 60,000 people. I mean, you're not going to... I mean, a, a fraction of a percent of an error rate is going to have several people. Yeah. And we have to deal with it. Of course. And no th that said, we need to take care of it. But at the same time, mistakes were also made in the past Absolutely. or everywhere in the world. Mistakes Absolutely. are made. So it's not El Salvador attacking or disregarding human rights. It's just right. a normal condition of taking such action. Yeah. It's like a war and it certainly can get messy sometimes. Yep. But that's what has to happen in order to fix it. And for what it's worth, I am not alone. Most of the people on the ground, the overwhelming majority majority of the folks here in El Salvador 100% support this action yeah. and its continuance. So. And that's the same feeling that I had talking to locals, because it seems to me that the people that are not happy with this action are actually uh, people that were already well off. So that's for true. them, it didn't make that much difference. <laughs> Yeah, and change is an existential threat to, to some of them, you know, especially if they were benefiting from some of the corruption in the past. Like I said, the central government here was very weak 
because, and this came out actually yesterday, you know, there were business people and government officials in the one of the previous administrations that embezzled 180, I think it was $187 million just in one case that's being prosecuted right now. That money under a Bokele administration actually goes to protecting the people and the results speak for themselves. Wow. And so when you take that much money out of a country the size of El Salvador, you're going to have a power vacuum. And that's what allowed the gangs to, to gain the traction that they did. And now that's come to an end. Yeah. So before asking you, how did you end up in El Salvador? Sure. Uh, I would like you to explain to the audience what is flag theory and how that plays into the mobility of the population. Sure. Everyone in the world. Okay. Yeah. No. So this will take us back to the book, The Sovereign Individual. And the idea that was expressed there is that we're going to experience a rocky set of decades where some countries are going to get ahead of the game and some countries are going to unfortunately go in the wrong direction. And it's meant as a practical guide for people who want to try to navigate the transition to the digital age. And the idea expressed is fairly simple to grasp. It's the concept that you should separate the different areas of your life under different jurisdictions as much as possible. In other words, if you have citizenship in one country, maybe you have a residency in another. If you are living in one country, maybe you do your business in another and you bank in a third. So by keeping your interests uh, separated under different jurisdictions, you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. And that's really the theme of the book is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Explore the different jurisdictions that are available to you and pick and choose the right one for the right message. And this is where El Salvador comes in. There's a lot of different ways to think about your personal freedom, but I'll do just two of them and we can dig into the specifics. The first for me that's important is freedom of movement. No one wants to be locked in a cell. No one wants to be locked in a house or a town or a region or even a country. Like you want to be able to feel like you can go anywhere in the world. Like that's a natural human desire is the desire to like not be restricted. And so freedom of movement is really important. When we're talking about flag theory, we're, we have to realize that freedom of movement is basically an issue whenever you cross a border, right? Borders have two sides. And that means that whenever you cross a border, you have to satisfy the requirements of both jurisdictions in order to get where you're going, right? Mm -hmm. When we start thinking about exit requirements, right? Exit requirements for countries are generally frowned upon in the international community. It's seen as a violation of our human rights to have exit requirements. It's generally agreed upon that a person should be able to leave a country if they want. Some countries don't abide by that policy. Can you define exit requirements? What do you mean exactly? So, okay, so let's say that, for example, you are a citizen of the People's Republic of China, right? And you <laughs> want to go to the United States. Well, guess what? You're going to have to jump through some hoops in order to do that, right? So China has exit requirements, and they may not be listed in black and white, but they uh, certainly they're in a uh, practical concern. And China is not alone. I don't want to pick on just one country. There are several countries that have varying levels of these kinds of policies. And in my opinion, there are barriers to your mobility, right? Whenever you have to meet the requirements of these sort of exit rules or whatever. But it's not just the exit requirement, obviously, and you know this is a, being a traveler yourself, it's the requirements to get into a country. If you don't have residency in the country that you want to go into, then you have to qualify for some type of visa in order to get in. 
If you have a great passport from a first world country, Western country, maybe you have tourist visas already in place to a large number of countries. In El Salvador, we actually have that as well. There are 133 countries that Salvadorans can easily visit as a tourist. Mm -hmm. So these are some things that are interesting here. You have, um, when you consider, like, let's compare the Salvadoran passport to some other first world passports. When you consider countries that you're actually likely to visit, most of them are the same. There are some typical countries that require a formal visa, like, for example, Canada, the United States, Mexico, for obvious reasons, New Zealand, the United Kingdom. They all require formal visas to enter prior to your journey. But the good news is all of those countries have embassies in San Salvador where you can go in person before your trip. They have online systems as well, but nothing beats a face-to-face when mm -hmm. you're trying to get answers to your travel questions. Get something done. You, yeah. you want to talk to an expert, right? Yeah. That knows you know, what the answer is and you don't want to email back and forth. So at any rate, you'll need formal visas for those. There are a couple of other countries as well. But what's interesting is that having a Salvadoran passport will let people visit some countries more easily. Iran, for example, <laughs> you can get an e-visa to go to Iran. Turkey, Belarus, the Russian Federation, you can go there on tourist visas. And that's not typically available to some other first world travelers. The other side of that is your economic life. So we've talked about freedom of movement as being a, a core human rights principle that flag theory can help you accomplish. Let's talk about economic life. In El Salvador, you've got a really great situation, right? Creating a Salvadoran company in what we're creating here in the Bitcoin city, it's like a zero tax life hack. And it lasts as long as you want it to. If you want to buy property here, guess what? You don't have to pay property tax. One of the few countries in the world to actually do that. If you want to hire workers for your business or for your personal needs, there are no municipal taxes and there are no taxes on income. Your employees get to keep 100% of the wages that you pay them. And that's what fair trade looks like. That's what wow. a fair deal looks like. It goes further. You know, when you start talking about all of the different benefits of running the business, see, over a period of 10 years or 20 years or however long your professional life is, you keep more of your money versus being uh, domiciled in a different jurisdiction. So you've got all this wealth and then you want to invest it, right? You want to have a country where you can actually put it to use and gain some returns. And guess what? You don't have to pay capital gains tax. It really is a zero tax life hack setting up in El Salvador. So when you consider your freedom of movement and then you consider the economic benefits of getting residency and citizenship in El Salvador, guys, it's a no brainer. Add Bitcoin to the top of that. And it's like, why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Interesting. And this is not only for the Bitcoin city that is planned to be built and mm -hmm. also to run on zero taxes on any kind that applies to all El Salvador? How does that work? So there's a couple of different situations here. The property tax that I mentioned, that's countrywide. Okay. So that's something to think about. When we talk about no taxes on your income and the municipal taxes, those are Bitcoin city specific situation because Bitcoin city is a special economic zone, right? What that means is that the, the government of El Salvador has carved out an actual boundary of physical geography where Bitcoin City will be located. And if you're able to domicile your business there, you can take advantage of those tax incentives. You don't have to physically live there, but you can domicile your business there. That's part of what Escape to El Salvador will be doing. Interesting. Okay. So is that why you end up in El Salvador? I think you moved here before. So yeah, we've been here for a little while. And honestly, like for me, it's very personal, right? Okay. 
back in the late 90s, I was involved in a project in Costa Rica, okay. and it was trying to do the same sort of thing that Bitcoin City was doing. It was trying to set it itself up as a free private city and have its own currency that was outside of the control of nation states, and it was very far ahead of its time. It failed for a couple of different reasons. I won't get into them, but basically we've been able to solve a lot of those problems. And I'm here in El Salvador because I don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. I want to make sure that I do everything that I can to help something like Bitcoin City be successful. And for me, being in El Salvador means being on the bleeding edge of Bitcoin's journey to global supremacy as a store of value, as a medium of exchange, and as a unit of account. And I get to be here and see that and help build that. I know that my daily efforts are advancing the cause of freedom, not only here in this country, but around the world. And that's a great feeling that helps you sleep really well at night. You know, when you have a chance to participate in all of the different startups that have chosen El Salvador as their base of operations, when you get to network with all of the Bitcoin oriented leaders and entrepreneurs that are coming here and investing aggressively in the country, the optimism is off the charts. You feel like everything is possible and every day is a wonderful day. and It's a gift. Yeah. And I moved here from the United States. And yet there is a very nice vibe here and life is refreshing. Yes, absolutely. there is this optimism in the country and this willingness and readiness of building and creating. You can smell it in the air. Yes, it is a beautiful feeling. And it's the first time in my life that I experienced that. Very cool. And you know, Jeremy, your mission is very inspiring. And before coming here to El Salvador, actually, I used to see Bitcoin only as an investment vehicle, as a way to protect your money from inflation and also to beat inflation in the long run sure. and store your value. But coming here, I started to see the power of Bitcoin used yes. as a currency yes. and not only the power of it, also the necessity that a lot of people in El Salvador have because access to banking here is not as easy okay. as it is, for instance, in the United States or in Europe or in Canada. Right. So I'm starting to embracing uh, Bitcoin not only as a way to make more money or to protect myself from the crazy monetary policies that the governments sure. around the world have, but also as a way to actually change the world for the better. Yeah. So you're here because you really want to make sure this happens. And my question would be, what can the average person that is watching this video, either abroad or mm -hmm. people that are here already, do to help El Salvador, to help Bitcoin, to help the Lightning Network succeed? Those are fantastic questions. I think that in order to best answer that question, I need to borrow an analogy. This is not mine. This belongs to Andreas Antonopoulos. I want to remind people what happened with phone companies in the late 90s. Uh, you had AT&T, you, know, you had your Bell South, you had your MCI WorldCom. And these companies had traditionally moved voice communications over telephone lines, right? The internet revolution allowed us to carry voice transmissions over the internet instead of telephone lines, and they pitched a giant fit. I mean, there were congressional hearings, like they went all out trying to stop this transition from happening. I think it's analogous to the situation that we have with traditional finance companies today and the rise of the technology like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the internet in this analogy because All of the financial transactions that have occurred up to this date in a meaningful way have been handled over these old school legacy systems, right? There's SWIFT and, and SEPA transfers and all of that. And it was bank to bank communication and central banks were involved. But now you have this new technology that allows us to do it 
completely outside of their control, right? And obviously they don't want to give that up. The situation is actually better than in this analogy because in the 90s, the early 2000s, it was possible to compete with AT&T. And you saw a lot of these VoIP providers come up and new businesses were formed, but it still required like a lot of capital expenditure. You had to fill out your systems. There were engineers involved. It wasn't cheap to do it, but it was possible. And you could compete with the big boys if you wanted to. But what's even better about the Bitcoin transition today is that you don't even have to do that. On a Raspberry Pi that you bought for 65 bucks at a garage sale, you can compete with JP Morgan Chase and all of these folks. It's absolutely insane that you can do that, right? And it doesn't require a great level of technical ability because the developers in the community have made it super easy. If you can download a program from the internet and run it or an application, you can use Bitcoin. All it takes is just the open mind to get into it and try it out. Maybe you break a few things at first, but you learn. But the capability, the technology is so accessible to the average person that that's the big transfer of power. So we really will see in our lifetime the ability for most people around the world to have complete sovereignty over their money. They get to decide and absolutely no one else can have the ability to prevent you from storing your money or using your money. And that's a paradigm shift that the legacy institutions quite simply don't have the mental capacity to prepare for. They're not ready. So Jeremy, to double click on that, okay. we're talking about how Bitcoin actually empowers people yes. to own and access their own money. And this is important to repeat because a lot of people don't understand that once they deposit their money, their cash in a bank account, they don't own their money anymore. Right. And on top of that, when the government can decide the value of your money, printing it in excess, you don't really own the money. You don't really own that value because that value can be arbitrarily altered by a central authority. Yes. So Bitcoin is solving a very big problem that the mankind has had for almost all its existence. Yes. So to make people understand what are the parts and the stakeholders of Bitcoin, because a lot of people don't really understand what is the role of miners and what is the role of nodes and everybody else. So sure. we talk about that. Absolutely. So there are different stakeholders in the Bitcoin environment. There are developers, obviously people who create the code that users actually run. Developers have all the freedom in the world. They can put new additions to the Bitcoin software. They can handle things in completely different ways. They can change all of the parameters. But at the end of the day, the users take a look at that and they collectively decide what software they want to run. And there's another very important part of the ecosystem, which is the businesses that sort of surround Bitcoin. So we're talking about exchanges, we're talking about wallet providers or custodians. And all of those DeFi, you know, whatever that means. So they all exist as the sort of the business sphere around users and developers. But it's important to get the procedure correct, right? The developers come up with new ideas. Users decide whether or not they want to run them. And then business creates opportunities to monetize that around the user base. If you get the order out of sync, like what happened with a couple of years ago, you had a group of people that wanted to put the business interests in front of the user interest and dictate what they thought Bitcoin was or change the parameters in their own way. Well, the users didn't care for what the business had to say about that. They ran the software that they wanted to run anyway. And so the businesses ended up losing a lot of money. 
Getting the procedure correct, I think, is very important. And so when we're talking about the situation today with businesses and the differences between the legacy system and the Bitcoin system, it's that the users are in in control. They are the ones that dictate what's going to happen, not the businesses. The businesses have to respond to that. But that's what decentralization actually means. How is the user empowered in fighting back a big business that wants to overrule the network? So there's a phrase in Bitcoin that says, be your own bank, right? And that's a really powerful statement. You can fit it on a bumper sticker, but when you really start to peel back the layers, it's tremendous in what it actually tells us. It means that you have, as an individual, the ability to say, I'm going to interact with the Bitcoin network. And I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to decide which transactions I think are valid and which are not valid by the software that I'm running on my computer or whatever. So that's where the power comes from. It's not that you have to log into a bank account on a website and the bank gets to tell you (laughs) what transactions they're going to allow you to have, (laughs) right? And that's the experience that most people know and have known for many, many years. And so... Bitcoin is absolutely a drastic change from that. It puts the power back in the hands of the users by letting them say, you get to run the software that you want. If you think that the Bitcoin software is the one that you want to run, you have that choice. No one can stop you from doing it. You can download the code from a number of different places and you can get a computer at a little secondhand shop and you can do it. No one can stop you from that. Yep. Okay, so how does Bitcoin differentiate itself from all the other cryptocurrencies that floats around the internet right now? Okay, so it's a a broad question and there are a lot of answers. The first one that I will point to is the the way that it solves the problem. And we have to talk about the problem first, right? The problem is how do you send value? How do you send money over the internet in a system where you have adversarial actors, where you can't necessarily trust all of the different people in the system? Bitcoin is the solution to that problem. The problem is famous. It's called the Byzantine Generals problem. In computer science, it's been around for a long time. Bitcoin is the solution to that problem. It obviously was very successful and very popular as a result of solving that problem. And so naturally, you're going to have many imitators that are going to spring up in its place to try to say that they're better in one way or another. But the longer you spend understanding Bitcoin and its exact trade-offs that have been made in its design and the way that it works, you realize that every single trade-off was made for a very valid reason. And the design space was attempted over many, many years, over decades, with people trying interesting combinations. And Bitcoin is the ultimate result of that. It's not like a beginning jumping off point. Oh, hey, let's just try this new thing. It is the result of many years of study in computer science and and theory and many, many very smart individuals trying for a long time to solve that problem. But then you're going to have competitors and you're going to have imitators and they're going to say, oh, well, I'm going to use this one parameter and I'm going to change this one thing and I'm going to market it as better or or at least different uh, to, to Bitcoin. And if you are uninitiated in the space, you may not understand why that parameter was set the way that it was. And so you say, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll bet on that horse a little bit. But that was really the only thing that those developers wanted was for you to place that bet. Because in order for you to place that bet, someone had to sell you the coin. And guess who has that coin at the beginning as the people that started the project, right? It's just a hustle. That's all. 
Interesting. <laughs> and first of all, I was one of these people that I was investing in Bitcoin and crypto, and I didn't really understand in details the importance of Bitcoin and the problem that it solves uh, compared to the crypto ecosystem. Sure. So I understand that I was one of these uh, people, and I didn't understand that all these other cryptocurrency are not decentralized right. or not uh, uncontrollable. Sure as uh, they want to make you believe them. Yeah, well, you have to ask yourself, right? So can one person or a small group of people unilaterally make a change to your ecosystem or environment, the software, right? And if the answer is yes, then it's not decentralized. Decentralization is not binary. It either is or it's not, or it's not right? You either can have a small group of people put their thumb on the, the scale or not. And so every system that I've heard of has central points of failure. And what we have to understand is that that's literally the reason why Bitcoin exists. It exists to be a system that does not have a central point of failure because that is the adversarial environment that you're working under, right? If there is a central point of failure, if there is one person that can change it, then it's completely worthless and it doesn't solve the problem. It may get close. It may look like it solves the problem at first blush, but when you dig into it, it doesn't because someone ultimately can corrupt it. That's why Bitcoin is different. It sounds to me like these other cryptocurrencies are nothing else than a more fancy and technologically advanced uh, bank yeah. where there is a sure. corporate headquarters and... Sure. And trust. The thing that they have is trust. And that's really the key word is who do you want to trust? Bitcoin gives you the ability to say, if you want to, you can trust a custodian. Like I can go and get a wallet on my phone right now that handles Bitcoin, but it's technically held by some company somewhere. If I want to trust them, I can, but I don't have to. But with all of these other systems, you have to trust that single point of failure, right? So trust is the key. And you're absolutely right. It looks like a bank because that's our traditional understanding of, of trust is you have to believe that that company or that group of individuals, or in some cases, that one individual has your best interest at heart. But history is littered with examples where that is not the case, <laughs> where if someone can put their hand in the cookie jar, they're going to. At some point in time, the temptation is just too severe, which is, again, why Bitcoin was created and why it's revolutionary is because we took away the cookie jar. Yeah, what happened to me thinking and studying Bitcoin a lot is realizing that the special thing that Bitcoin does is removes uh, the human element, you know? Right. Because at the point, there's no biases, emotions, sure. like fear, stress, uh, greed, and Bitcoin doesn't allow the human element to corrupt. Uh, it's either valid or it's not valid. A transaction either fits the rules or it doesn't. <laughs> That's it. What I realized recently watching an interview from Michael Saylor, mm, yes. and I'm saying this because I used to also believe Ethereum was decentralized and I would myself put Ethereum on par with Bitcoin. But then I realized that the incentives in Ethereum don't work like in Bitcoin or they can change because mm. Ethereum now is switching from proof of work right. to proof of stake. And without talking about the problem of the technical problem with all that, what was interesting to me to think is that all this mining equipment developed and bought and invested in for Ethereum mm. is going to pretty much go to waste. So it looks to me that the miners, Ethereum miners, uh, could have never made that decision. Mm. So it seems like 
it has to be someone else that takes the decision because it favors this party in the ecosystem and not the miners. So. Sure. Yeah, so I don't follow the Ethereum space very closely, so I'm not the best person to opine on that particular situation. Although I will say this, the problem is that Ethereum tried to be something that it could never be, which is money, right? I think that there are a lot of really intelligent people that operate in the Ethereum space. I know that a lot of them are scammers. I know that a lot of them have genuine intentions mm -hmm. and they get caught up in the complexity of smart contracts. And it's really cool from an academic standpoint, from a computer science standpoint of like, how do you actually create these proofs? And, you know, how do you make a contract work? And that's all fine, like on a theoretical basis. But when you try to say that the system that it's been built on is secure and stable, well, it's not. It's like building on quicksand. Because if you don't have a token at the bottom of that ecosystem that is absolutely incorruptible, then at some point, someone is going to corrupt it. Regardless if it's one person or a group of people or in the, in the future, a consortium of nation states, like it will get corrupted. So the token has to be beyond reproach. And the only one that fits that description is Bitcoin. And so it's my sincere hope that all of those people that poured a lot of sweat and energy and time into exploring the design space of smart contracts, I hope that they come and start taking a serious look at what you can do with the Lightning Network, what you can do with the Liquid Network, what you can do with other protocols as well on top of Bitcoin, drive chains, for example. There are so many really awesome areas yet to explore within Bitcoin. And I hope those developers come to the right side of the you yeah. know, history and explore that space. You know, And it's sad that some of them are going to lose some money. Yes, I also hope that these people put their intelligence and talent and hard working in the right place sure. because I have learned here in El Salvador using the Lightning Network mm. that this second layer on top of Bitcoin can actually help achieve all these other technological solutions implemented yeah. in these other cryptocurrencies, Correct. but built, as you said, on an uncorruptible um, first element, in this yes. case, Bitcoin. Yes. Okay, so we talk about the importance of Bitcoin and the first layer. Yes. And now, Jeremy, I want to move and I want to switch topic and I want to talk about the Lightning Network because a lot of people are not familiar with that, especially outside of El Salvador. So I want to ask you first, if you could easily or quickly explain the Lightning Network or even just sure. what it does. And then I want to ask you more on a philosophical aspect. Do you think the Bitcoin experiment in El Salvador would have worked without the Lightning Network. Let's do 101 intro to the Lightning Perfect. Network. And I'm going to start real high level and then I'm going to peel back the layers a bit. So a very rudimentary and easy way to conceptualize the difference between base layer Bitcoin and the Lightning Network is to think about base layer as a savings account and Lightning Network as a checking account. I personally don't like this analogy okay. because... It's easy to understand, though. It, it's, it's easy to understand. We'll leave it like that. But now let's go back a layer of the onion a bit. So it's a payments network that's built on top of Bitcoin. It gives people the ability to make instantaneous transactions or to have finality in a very short period of time. And here's why that's different to the base layer. On the base layer, we all know blocks come on average stochastically every 10 minutes, right? Sometimes it can be really fast and you can have a bunch of them in a row. Sometimes you're sitting there for 40, 50, 60 minutes before you get a block, right? And so in a retail setting, 
using the base layer is not very desirable because if you're buying groceries and you're at the checkout stand and you have to wait for 40 minutes for your payment to go through, your ice cream is melted and everybody behind you in the line, they want to kill you. It's, it's absolutely terrible. So in a retail setting, that's just never going to work. It can work really well for like person to person payments where time isn't of the essence. But when you need to have finality on your transaction, you need something like the Lightning Network. By the way, this is why companies like Visa and MasterCard exist in the traditional legacy system, because they were selling the idea of settlement in a very quick fashion by using centralized database and keeping track of everybody's funds, right? So the desire for finality is a natural desire in many different human transactions, right? So in that sense it would be very difficult for Bitcoin to succeed in El Salvador or anywhere else for that matter without a payments network existing alongside of it. But there's a lot more to learn about the Lightning Network. It gets far more complex than that, and I find it endlessly fascinating. I've been playing around with it for almost five years now, and it's a tremendous design space. And I think that there's going to be a lot of very empowering technologies that are going to be built on top of Lightning. And that's another really cool thing about Bitcoin as a technology stack too, right? As you're thinking about it at home, you're thinking like there's this egg at the middle and that is the core layer, right? And that's just every 10 minutes a block comes and it's basic Bitcoin transactions. Then on top of that, you've got Lightning Network built over that as a payments solution. And then on top of that, you're going to have all of these other types of application level situation where you're going to be able to do, I mean, I'm not going to wax poetic about this. There are several people that do a better job of me, but they are going to be solutions that are going to be real life and make everybody's real world experience so much better. And you're not even going to know that you're using Bitcoin. It's just, it's all going to be vanished away underneath the hood of whatever software you're using. But fundamentally, it'll be just like at the beginning of this interview when we talked about the phone companies, right? You might pick up a phone. It might even have an AT&T logo on it. And you might make a phone call, but that's not going over a telephone line anymore. It's going over the internet. And in the same way, you might interact with your bank in the future or some new company that has come along and you're just transferring value. And you don't know like what that means, but at the bottom, it's going over Bitcoin. And that's the future that's about to happen. Wow. Interesting. So, Jeremy, I'm very grateful that you spend this time with me, oh, educating myself and, uh, and our audience about this, because I'm still learning all this and I'm Sorry. very excited about it. So, would you like to close this conversation talking about the conference that yes. is going to be held here in El Salvador, adopting Bitcoin and what role you're going to play in it? Absolutely. First of all, I just want to say thank you to all of the audience for listening so far. It's been my pleasure to speak, and Francesco, you're welcome back anytime, and we can get into a thousand different things. Thank you. There's a great opportunity for you. If you have been sitting on the sidelines and hearing about El Salvador, getting excited about El Salvador, but you haven't quite pulled the trigger on whether or not to come and experience it yourself, the Adopting Bitcoin Conference in November 15, 16, and 17 is going to be a great opportunity for you because you're not traveling to a country all by yourself. There will be 2,000, maybe 2,500 Bitcoiners from all around the world that are going to descend on this city just a, a few blocks from here and have this great conference where there are just a ton of real awesome speakers. I mean, we're talking real heavy hitters that are going to be presenting some things that uh, are going to just knock your socks off. And there's going to be some secret things that will be uh, released, I'm sure, on stage, just like there was uh, last year. So if you want to come and be 
right in the middle of it, right in the thick of it, come to the conference. It, it'll be a wonderful time to feel comfortable exploring the country in the company of people who share your ideas and your ideals. And I'm certainly happy to help in any way that I can with that. I'll be participating. We also have some great tours that are scheduled. We have Escape to El Salvador mm -hmm. is a network of different people, right? So we have obviously the attorneys and the accountants and the business folks that do all of the residency, but we also have sort of a more how to experience life in El Salvador piece. So we've got tour guides and we've got tours set up on either side of the conference, a couple of days before and a couple of days after. So if you want to come and see archaeological ruins, if you want to go hike the volcano, we even have a special package called the Bitcoin City Relocation Tour. If you are on the fence about like, do I go there? What is it actually like? We're going to charter a couple of buses and we're going to take a bunch of people. We're going to go to La Union at the actual location where Bitcoin City is going wow. to be built. We're going to tour and hike up that volcano and, and experience that. We're even going to get on a boat, go around the bay. We're going to have lunch on a tropical island. And there's some really nice resorts out there that we can stay at overnight. So if that's something that's appealing to you, definitely reach out. Check me out on my Twitter page and I'll link to it pretty frequently. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I'd love to get a chance to meet as many of you as possible. Wow, that sounds pretty exciting. I didn't even know about all this sure. stuff. I think it uh, looks like I'm going to have to... I'm dropping some alpha on your video here. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Very appreciated. Okay. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. This You're was amazing. I'm hoping we can do this again in the future and talk more about all Bitcoin, El Salvador, and, and all these topics related to freedom, sovereign individual, and everything that is giving me hope. I, I really honest. look forward to it. I really look forward to it. And you, you call me anytime and, and we'll get into it, okay? Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Was it was a pleasure. If you need to know anything about El Salvador, this is your man. Oh my goodness. I'll help anybody that I can. Yeah. Reach out to him on Twitter. It's at El Salvador Visas, or you can visit the website escape to El Salvador.org. Okay, El Salvador visas or the website. I'm going to link everything down below in the description box. So don't forget to check it out. Thank you for, so much for spending this time with us and we'll see you at the next one. Bye. See you.